Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. This is Patrick B. McCoy, the African American voice in classical music, and I welcome you today to this very exciting show. Today's show is very different, much different from the other shows that we have had on. Generally, we focus on organists and singers and persons who play other instruments. But today, not only do we talk to a person who's well-skilled at an instrument, we're talking to a talented author who has put her thoughts about music and musicians on paper. Elaine Mack is a native of Chicago, Illinois, and a professional cellist. Raised in a musical family, she attended Catholic school in Chicago, beginning her cello studies at the age of 14. As a student of Carl Frew, she received her bachelor's and master's degrees in cello performance from Chicago Musical College of Roosevelt University, now known as the Chicago College of the Performing Arts. She began her professional music career at the age of 19, performing in musicals such as The Raisin, The Wiz, The King and I, Cabaret, and Dreamgirls, as well as symphonic, operatic, chamber, and solo repertoire. She was a recipient of a Music Assistance Fund Fellowship, which enabled her to work in the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra for one season and was a founding member of the Black Music Repertory Ensemble. Her accolades and accomplishments are too much more to name, but what I would like to do is welcome Elaine Mack to talk about her new book, Black Classical Musicians in Philadelphia, All Histories Covering Four Generations. Good afternoon, Elaine. Good afternoon, Patrick. It's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, it's such an honor to have you. Now, this is an exciting book, and I'm so glad that I have a copy in my hand. And not only do I have a copy in my hand, I was actually to be a part of your presentation that you recently made at the National Convention of the National Association of Negro Musicians, and it was quite successful. You should be quite proud of yourself. Oh, I am proud of myself. I had a great time, and I got great reception from people, some of whom were in the book were in the audience. It was really a fabulous thing. Oh, wow. So what inspired you to do this book, particularly on black classical musicians, and let alone black classical musicians in Philadelphia? Well, it's really a reflection of my background. Um, both of my parents are musicians. Um, my father was a composer, conductor, arranger, bass baritone, uh, flautist. Um, my mother um, was a pianist and also a singer. And always had an abiding interest in all things musical. Both of my parents were musical. We grew up with music, and we were exposed to just about every type of music you can think of. You know, there was popular music and church music, and everything that was on the radio and TV at the time. But you know, over but our, I would say that our preference, our our biggest love, my parents' biggest love was classical music, and that's what I heard most of. And in beginning my cello studies at age fourteen. I focused on that. That that became it for me. And it, and it was a personal choice. It wasn't like someone told me I must do this. You know, it was something that I chose on my own. So um, basically the focus of the book is a reflection of my own background and, and personal taste. And the reason I focused on Philadelphia was because I had moved there in 1989, even being from Chicago, which has its own musical traditions and so on. Um, I had gone as far as I could go in the music field in the music world of Chicago at that time. I was a jobber um, playing shows and a cellist playing shows and various things, but I was never successful in doing the thing I really wanted to do, and that was being a symphony orchestra, 
my original aspiration was to join the Chicago Symphony. And I was not accepted for a, f- a few good reasons, race being one of them. But um, I just went on, and I decided I needed to start over my career someplace where no one knew me. There was a great symphony maybe I could possibly get into. And I just chose Philadelphia. I liked the sound of the orchestra, and I thought, I'll go there. So I went um, in 1989, spring of 1989. And in the process of of going there, and, you know, just the first thing I did, really, was go to concerts, start going to, to, to hear the symphony and see whatever's going on in the newspaper. And I was struck immediately by the number of black musicians who were involved, highly skilled musicians who were involved in classical music. And I had never seen this, even though my background with my parents, you know, I saw it at home, but I didn't see many black people doing, you know, classical music at this level, at a high level. In Philadelphia, for the first time I saw this, and it just struck me as interesting. And over time, I just got to know people from going to concerts and talking and hearing stories and various anecdotes. And um, I discovered that the connections between the people were as interesting as the individuals themselves. So um, about six years into my stay in Philadelphia, I was just thinking one day about, you know, where are we going as a people? What what are our um, possibilities for us? And where are we going in, in this music world? And I started thinking about all the people I knew, had met. And I thought, why didn't anybody write a book about these people? I think they're interesting. I think this would be a great, interesting thing to delve into. So I decided to do it. I went through my black book of contacts and wrote names down, and that list expanded uh, exponentially to 45 people. started out with mm-hmm. 10 or 15 people. It turned out 45. So anyway, um, I chose Philadelphia because I was there. I was there. I knew the people. I had an interest in the place. I lived there, so that was a perfect focus for the book. That's absolutely wonderful. How did you, what was the method that you used to actually capture the interview so that you could uh, record the, the documentation for the book? Um, I just had a, I had a little Sony Walkman recorder, which, which held regular-sized cassette tapes. I didn't want to, I wanted to get people's total comments, and I wanted their voices as well. I could have sat with a pad and paper and taken notes, but I wanted their voices because so much, it's not just the words people say, but how they say them, how they how they express themselves, and I couldn't have done that by just writing. So I just would, I bought a little cheap microphone from Radio Shack, and I had my Sony Walkman, and I bought a stack of tapes and 90-minute tapes and just took them, and I told people that I wasn't going to be recording them and that the recordings were not for sale but only for edit, editing purposes and transcribing purposes. So I just I just taped everyone on regular old cassette mm. tapes. That's still my method I use today. Yeah. This is such an impressive such an impressive resource. I noticed by as I scour through the book, you have such a rich diverse um diversity in the musicians. You have some musicians who are very well known and then like you mentioned, you have some musicians who some people may have not heard of, but they're well accomplished. Um, when you went to the the more well-known musicians, were you ever greeted with, uh, did you have any difficulty securing any interviews with any of the more well-known singers, or was it all easy all the way through just to get all the interviews? Um, I had the biggest difficulty with, quote-unquote, famous people. Because famous people, and I don't want to name their names, there are a few, but uh, they tend to have layers of people around them who who fancy themselves basically gatekeepers, 
and mm. and people for further for reasons that are actually very logical. The more famous you are, the more people want to get to you, the more people want right. from you. And so I I felt that in trying to contact a couple of these more well-known musicians, that my efforts were hampered, were really stopped by um, their minions, the people who who mm. sort of protect them from the public, which is kind of the downside of being famous in a sense, you know depending on how you, you know, live your life or whatever. But um, I did have some difficulties. There were some people who I wanted, but um, who were not, maybe not as famous per se, but they changed their minds the day of the interview or they did not uh, return my, my inquiries, my phone calls, so I just let them go. I don't wanna, I, it's not, not my intention to push people or pull people into something they don't really want to do. And by this, mm-hmm. and I also felt that my project was strong enough even though the people are not quote-unquote famous, not all of them are, I felt that my focus and my reason for doing the book was strong enough that the book would hold interest in spite of the fact there's no big famous people in it. In in other words, I had faith in my musicians that their their stories were strong enough to be interesting, and I didn't didn't necessarily need famous people to make it interesting. I believe in my project. Well, you know what? Mm, that's you know what the great thing is when I hold this book in my hand. If I was one of those people that said, "Oh, I didn't want to do it," or I had turned it down, I would feel foolish right now because this is really an exceptional project. And and I know that I should do this at the end, but I'm going to plug this book now. This book, Black Classical Musicians of Philadelphia, is a must. Have uh, if you're a teacher at the college level, whether you're at the university, the local library, this book should be a part of it. And I just want to thank you for um, for putting this together. Now, as I also look at the book, I noticed that the book is divided into four generations. Would you, by any chance, uh, be willing to highlight uh, one person from each of the four generations, and why did you choose that person for the book? Sure. Um, the four generations idea, had, I had to think about a long time because I had all these interviews, and I had to figure out a way to structure them in a meaningful way. And I didn't want to do it in a arbitrary, cool fashion, like alphabetically. That didn't make any sense to me, and it was not interesting. So I chose the four generations because I saw um, different social elements that influenced each generation musician, the different challenges they had with each generation. So in the first generation, which goes from 1902 to 1917, I think, um, the person who really grabbed me was Kenneth Goodman, concert organist. Um, he was, um, let's see, where's he? He was from South Philadelphia, from a you know poor family as most people were back then. And um, what struck me about him, first of all, he was 87 or 85 when I when I interviewed him. He had moved to the Chicago area, and I was able to reach him. The person who told me about Kenneth Goodman was Blanche Burton Lyles, who I'll talk about in a moment. But um, what I loved about Kenneth Goodman was that he made his career in Europe back in the night, like late 1940s. He was the recipient of um, a um, Barnes Foundation Fellowship and went to study with Marcel Dupre, famous concert organist in Paris at a time. And people did not do this. This was not a common, especially black people. We had no access to these types of opportunities in general at that time. But I loved him because... He's a soft-spoken, genteel, older man, beautiful personality. And one thing he told me, which is not in the book, I took this out because I didn't want to make it too personal. He said, "I, I made, I, I decided to make my stand overseas. 
I had studied there. I did well there, and I would have been a fool to come back to Philadelphia. So I, I, I left the United States, and I went there, and you should do the same. I didn't put that in the book because I didn't want to focus on me. But he told me years ago, leave and make your fortune elsewhere. And I did. Mm-hmm. That's another story. But I loved Kenneth Whitman because he was a gentleman, <laughs> kind, sweet person. And we had actually two interviews, and he was not in, he was not in the greatest health at the time. But his comments and the way he did things, his, oh, his whole story about how he had a visitation from Christ as a young man. He had a vision as when he was a very small boy, which, which basically he followed for the rest of his life. It was much success. He made a great impression on me. I really, I really miss him very much, even though I had talked with him only twice. Mm-hmm. So that was the first generation. Um, a person from the second generation who was a remarkable woman and instrumental in my finding some of the older generation people, there's always one person who knows just about everyone, who gets around, mm-hmm. goes all to the concerts, does everything. That person is Blanche Burton Lyles, who still lives in Philadelphia, still playing, still doing remarkable things. Um, Blanche was a main contact person for me, major, major contact person. Uh, she put me in touch with people and was not, o- not, o- not only able to do that, but told me why they are important and why they should be in the project. And that helped me focus my efforts tremendously because the first generation of people were mainly retired. They were in their 80s and 90s when I interviewed them. They had been out of the music business for years. But I was able to find them through Blanche. And she was, again, able to tell me why they were important, what their significance was, um, and how I should approach them. Uh, One person, um, a very brief quote from Elizabeth Wilder, was a singer in um, Drum U Opera Company in the 1940s. And um, let's see, Miss Wilder was in a nursing home, very old, in ill health. And um, I'm having to move from this noise. Um, and in ill health. And she was in a nursing home. I could never have found her without Blanche's help. Blanche took me to the nursing home. We talked with Mrs. Wilder. And it turned out to be a very good thing. Um, so, so Blanche in addition to having her own story to tell, was able to tell me about Marian Anderson and how she played for her as a young young child in South Philly, as a neighbor of Marian Anderson. And her connections between the people, I would say, provided a lot of glue for the book, the cohesion that you need for a project like this. She was fabulous and a remarkable mentor of um, young talent as well. Um, many of the very youngest people, Karen Slack. Blanche told me about her. Um, Blanche is a remarkable, remarkable person, so I thank her very much for um, her contact. So she was important. Yeah. Um, oh, yes. Let's see who else. Oh, you were my visit the there. And, uh, mm-hmm. in, in the third generation, a person who really made an impression on me was Leslie Burrs. Leslie is a flautist composer, and just a, a wonderful guy, energetic, strong-willed, um, determined, focused. And I first met him. He hired me. I was, I was hired for a little recording session he was doing with some music he had composed, and he wanted some strings. So um, another person, another friend, recommended I play for Leslie. And I re-invited him from the beginning. From the first moment I said I had on him, in the recording studio, he was, again, focused, direct. 
um, no nonsense, and I like that kind of person because you can you know where you're at, you know. And I kept in touch with him over the years and followed his efforts. And he was um, his story amazing about how he basically his his parents you know moved to the south, but he couldn't stay there because he couldn't take the music or social scene in North Carolina or wherever this was. So he came back to Philadelphia by himself as a 16-year-old kid, um, worked in the Navy shipyard to earn money, practiced all these instruments, did all this stuff, and basically stayed on his own. Um, I think he's, no, he stayed with an uncle, I think. But that's quite a move for a young kid. But that he was so determined and so focused. And I can relate to him because that's how I was when I was a kid. You know, still am, I guess. <laughs> but um, he was really fantastic. And to this day, he's still doing his own music, still doing his own thing, and now he's connected with Opera North. He was at the conference, at the convention, the non-convention last uh, last week, and I was so happy to see him because living overseas now, I don't see anyone unless I come back to the United States and stay for some time mm. during the summer. So he was, he's, he's remarkable, and he's still that same energetic, you know, focused, straight-ahead person who I met years ago. And then the last generation, uh, my fourth generation, a person I'd love, I'd love to talk about is Karen Slack. Karen was about 19 years old at the time I interviewed her, and she was about to go away. She had received the Rosa Ponzel Award or something. I forgot the exact name of the of the of the award. It was for young singers, for specifically for young singers under the age of 21. And at the time, she was living in North Philly with her father. Um, her mother was very ill. I didn't meet her mother. Her mother was um, was having, you know, health issues, major health issues. And there was some concern there. But, you know, Karen talked, and she had all these, you know, hopes for the future and everything. And and she was a kid, sweet kid. Um, her father called her Kmart. I never forget that. She said, Kmart, come downstairs. <laughs> and called her Kmart. I said, <laughs> but um, beautiful young lady. And I, I, I just... Beautiful voice. I heard her sing once. I thought, oh, my goodness, already at 19, she's got this fabulous voice. And, but she went on. Her mother passed away shortly after that. But her father said, go on and do your thing. Go on and study. Go on and, and learn and live. And she has done that. Now, here she is in her early 30s, I believe, or something. I'm not sure how old she is now, but she's now in her 30s and doing beautiful work and beginning to make some real uh, strides in the operatic world and I was so happy to see her last week at Nam. I hadn't seen her since she was since our interview back in 1995, and here she is. You know, so it's, oh, it's wow. really been a bad thing. Yeah, I had not seen her since that time, and I was I didn't recognize her because she had lost a few pounds and she was beautiful. Oh, it's beautiful, you know. I said, "Wow, Karen, oh, and she she saw me before <laughs> I saw her, and I was shocked." I said, "Wow, so, you know things." Are, have really changed and moved on for her, and I'm so happy. I was so happy to see her. This so absolutely fascinating. I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure it's a full circle moment for you to have been in the room and to see all these people that you interviewed for a book and now to have seen them progress to even to a higher level than what they were when you saw the first oh, yeah. um, potential. You know, I can tell you, people sometimes ask me, what was my criteria for choosing people? And... You know, part of it is your that gut feeling we many of us artists go by or people go by. Right. But I look for generally for people who are who love what they do, are passionate about their music and careers, um, are positive. Um, 
you know, it's, it's easy to go on and on about what you don't want, so I won't bother with that. What I do want <laughs> is a certain level of ability, you know, high ability, um, focus. You see consistently the same people doing what they've been doing all along except better. You know, there's a certain pattern you see it when you hang around for a while, as, as I did, you know. And um, just interesting things they do. And if you see people, you see people going to someone else's program, that's another good indicator. People who never show up to anybody else's affairs and, and presentations are too much into themselves. You have to see them having interest in other people and what they're doing. That's really a major mm-hmm. thing because we're, no one stands alone. We all have to have audiences at some point. So when I look in that audience and I see the same person over and over again going to different programs and they're doing their own thing, that's an interesting person to me, someone who cares about mm-hmm. what's going on around them, someone who networks, someone who's interested, who has a real focus, um, all positive things I look for. And I found them in abundance in this uh, you know, you, you hit on a key point right there. I, I touch on this often because a lot of times when I go to concerts by especially our African-American artists such as Lawrence Brownlee or um, Morris Robinson, a lot of the times when I'm in the audience, it seems like that I'm the only African-American person that I know, and particularly in, like in my circle that I know of uh, singers or whatnot. So you, it's, it's very important, like you said, it's very important that you go out to other people's events because, like you said, if you were always, you know, it, you know, expecting people to be at your things that then you're not supporting other people, you mm-hmm. it comes across as self-absorbed. So that's a great, great point. I'm glad you, you hit on that. Now, I want to go back. You hinted on this earlier. Could you talk about your transition from cellist to educator overseas? How did that come about? Ooh, that was a long story, but I'll try to make it really short. <laughs> that's a big transition. Well, actually, my, okay, at present, okay, I started out as a cellist, strictly a cellist, and really because I couldn't make it into the performing um, organization that I wanted to do, I had to basically find something else to do while I was waiting to do this wonderful thing I thought I wanted to do, which is play in an orchestra. So I just developed other skills and other interests. And I've always been interested in biographies. And stories. I mean, as a kid, I sat under the, the, the dining room table and listened to all the stories about the Great Depression with Grandma and all the relatives, and I, that was great fun for me, you know. So I listen more than I talk, which is something you probably wouldn't believe here in this interview. <laughs> but anyway, um, <laughs> no, really, I, 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 I'm more of a listener than a talker, and that's part of it. But over time, as a profession, professional cellist, I said, I don't want to spend my life doing gigs. I'm not a gig person. I don't like that. I didn't want to do that. And so over years, I said, if this doesn't happen, you know, I'm going to have to find something else to do. And I always had an interest in language, in, in the, especially the English language. It's great language. And um, after some years, and, and, and I've kind of basically left the music business in terms of the gig thing. You know, I just, I just stopped. I just wasn't interested in doing that. And I, but I didn't quite know what I was going to do next. So... To make a long story short, in 2005, I saw an ad for online for teaching English overseas, and I thought, oh, this sounds like it might be kind of interesting. Well, I went and got excited to go into it. I went and got a, a month-long, um, took a month-long intensive course overseas, and in Italy, actually, for TEFL, Teaching English as a Foreign Language. In 2006, I got my first job in South Korea. The main reason I did this was to 
so I could work. There was no there was no work for me. Um, unemployment was higher and higher, and I was at the bottom of the barrel. And I said, I've got to get out of here and make some money so I can live. And the the, the big reason I went to Korea was to finance to to earn the money to completely finance and release this book, my present book, Black Classical Musicians in Philadelphia. I started it in 1995. It did not come out until 2009, November 2009. Wow. It took a long yeah. It took a long time because I couldn't find a publisher. Um, I was told that it, that the book that the topic wasn't interesting. It wasn't sexy. It wasn't uh, <laughs> out of my. Believe it or not, yeah, it's sexy. Sexy, um, you've got to be kidding. Oh yeah, they want. Oh, people, when when you when black people write about a book, it's got to be something uh, lurid or sexy or freaky or negative in some way. It's always got to be some, have some kind of little edge to it. And I said, well, if, if this book is what it is, yeah, and this is this is standard. You look at look at look go to go to a bookstore one day. Look at all the books. It's all this you know weird stuff. Anyway. Um, uh, my credentials were also called into question. Who are you to write this book? Are you an academe? What what university do you belong to? What makes you an expert? And I didn't even bother to reply. I just ripped them letters up and kept going because I qualify because I said so. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I know I know That's this. I've lived this all my life. I don't have to have someone tell me I'm okay to know I'm okay. You have to believe in yourself as well. If you if you look yeah. for too many approval signals of approval, you'll never get anywhere. You have to believe in yourself, and that is that. Keep going. That's so, true. That is so true. So, so I went. I went to Korea to, to finance this book because I had no funding from any place. I had no grants. I had nothing. Just me and my own hard work. And there were some good people along the way, and a few losers as well. But I got rid of the losers and kept the good ones. And um, and I was able to hire a book designer. A website designer, you must have a website these days. You know, you must, you know. Um, and I was able to get a high-quality, hardcover book out, which is for history. It's posterity. It's not some cheap thing. I, I, tr- I tried uh, self-publishing for one year, which was an unqualified disaster. It was, it was just terrible. I just threw all that out the window. And eventually did meet my publisher, Janice Kearney, of Writing Our World Press. She took me on, and I was able to get my book published. It took a long time, but I did it. So, Congratulations! It's a wonderful work. Well, transitioning from music, from playing to writing, for me, to me, to me, it's all communication. It's all about language. So there's really no break for me. I don't feel like I've left music behind. I'm very much into it. It's my still my life, but it's just expressed in another arena, another way. And so it's now it's writing, and I haven't given up anything. I just I just put another hat on. I have many hats I can put on. You know, now I'm in my English teacher hat. After three years in South Korea, and I'm now in, uh, I spent my last year in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, where I teach at King Saud University. I have all women students, and I write there, too. I mean, I, I, and, and the salary is very good. It has enabled me to come back to the United States for the summer, travel, present at the, con- at the conference, at the convention, and do my work. If I stayed here, I would have nothing because there's no work here. So I have to go where the work is so I can make the money, do what I do. That's the way. That's the way oh my, my life goodness. is, and it's fine with me. You made yeah. a great point. You made a great point um, earlier. Um, when you were speaking about being a person of many hats, because a lot of times, you know, people think that they're just going to go sing and 
play their instrument, and I'm going to be the famous musician. But I want to be clear to everyone listening, this person whom I'm speaking with, Elaine Mack, is is an exceptional cellist. And it's not a question that she's not a good musician. You have to be a person that, you know, you have to be able to have a good set of skills, whether it's writing or balancing your checkbook, whatever, because just singing or playing your instrument these days are not going to cut it. You have to be versatile. So, oh, my goodness, thank you so much for bringing that that point home. Now, Mm -hmm. it was something else I wanted to talk to you about. Now, since I'm based out of Washington, D.C., there's no way that I can have this conversation without mentioning Sylvia Olden Lee. Tell me about your time with her. Oh, my goodness, Sylvia. The great Sylvia Olden Lee, another person legendary in, in, in singing and operatic circles and really any kind of musical circles. Everyone knew Sylvia. I was fortunate enough to have heard her perform early on in my days here. I went to a concert, a recital at Curtis Institute in Philadelphia, and she was accompanying a singer in and to be honest, I forgot who the singer was, but I remember this lady at the piano who sang, who played so beautifully. I thought, wow, she's really good. Who is she? And turned out to be Sylvia Oldley. I had never heard of her because, again, you know, I was still new in town and all. But um, she was another person who pulled me into things. I mean, she literally pulled me physically. She said, you're going to this concert. Come on. And she, she pulled me, you know, and I would have to show up. When Sylvia said show up, you show up, you know, she had that kind of, determination and that kind of drive that she just compelled you, you know. Um, I interviewed her at her home in, in, in uh, Germantown, I think she lived in. And um, every time I went to hear a concert, there was Sylvia. Every time I went to hear a singer, a recital, there she was. She, oh golly, you really, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm shamelessly plugging my book, but you really have to read about her in her own words to know her background. <laughs> Tremendous background, um, tremendous support in every way of all people, just a dynamo, wonderful person. Um, I mean, really, I, 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 you, you just have to read her story, really. It's the only thing you can get, even, even a portion of what she has to say and how she says it. Oh, I'd like to mention something. Uh, the tapes, the interview tapes that I did are actually available only through the Center for Black Music Research in Chicago. It's Columbia College, Chicago. And the Center for Black Music Research is an arm of that school. It's a part of it. And the tapes are archived. So if you ever feel like doing some scholarly listening, you cannot take the tapes out, of course, but you can hear these people's voices, the originals. And that and it, it's a real it's a real gold mine. Every everyone is on tape. And you will hear Sylvia's own speaking style, very thick southern accent. And this high voice and low voice and high voice. I mean, she just, she's fabulous. A wonderful woman. Mm. Now gone. I, I forget exactly when she died, but she is never to be forgotten. And I'm glad that I had a little portion of that, that I was able to save her, her voice and her comments edited by me in the book. So I recommend that all, all of you read, buy this book and read about Sylvia Olden Lee. Yes, you must get the book. You must get the book. You must. Now, just when you were talking about Sylvia Olden Lee playing at Curtis, that hearkened me back um, to Miss Blanche uh, Burton Lyles because uh, I'm reading your book on on page 131, and it notes at the end of your interview with her that um, she treated you to an impromptu concert of piano improvisations. And when I visited with her recently, in in Philadelphia, she played for us, the Rock Off, and I just wanted to point out to the listeners that this 
great woman, uh, Blanche uh, Burton Lyles. Lyles Burton was um, she was the first black woman to graduate from the Curtis Institute in 1954. So I just wanted to harken back to that. And I think I mixed those names. I think I, I think I juxtaposed those those names. But at any rate, uh, I want to go back just to talk about the book further. Um, you know, just for a person who's starting out, you kind of mentioned it briefly, but to someone who maybe is in the process of writing a book or aspiring to, to put together a book, what would be some suggestions you would offer them in addition to um, the self-publishing uh, aspect? Okay, if you're interested in doing any sort of work where you're um, compiling stories like I did or doing any sort of historical thing, begin with your own interests. Begin with yourself. Don't write about something that doesn't interest you. Like, for instance, I am not a sports person, and there's some really interesting stories about sports people. I'm not interested in sports. Write about, begin with your own interests. It could be anything. For instance, if you're interested in, let's say, quilting, you like quilting. Maybe maybe your grandmother did quilting and you own one of her quilts. Go start finding stories about people um, who did quilting or who do, or who do quilting. Okay, we'll go back to music, though. Music, you can say start with your own interests, uh, make a list of people you know, and with social networks like Facebook and the Internet, um, emails and this and that, and Google search engines, much easier to find information about people these days, much easier than it ever was. There was no Internet when I did this book, my first book. Um, start with your own interests. Keep it simple. Don't be in a hurry. Don't, don't do something to make a bunch of money. You'll fall right over your feet because you're, you're already your motives are misplaced. Love what you do. Um, start with something you're interested in and go very slowly. Gather up some information. And also, if you say say you have gathered up say ten interviews for something, you know, or ten people, talk to them, take your time, um, don't be in a hurry, and back away from the from the material for a while. Don't don't make it a project where you're just plugging away every single day. It's not that sort of thing because life unfolds in its own time, and you mm-hmm. have to be willing to go with that flow. If I had been in a hurry, this book would would not be nearly as good. Give yourself time to work on the material, stand back and look at it, back away from it for a while, come back to it. But, but keep it, keep your focus. Um, keep your eyes on the prize. The prize being, if, mm. if, if you, you want to talk about, say, you know, black people and maybe some aspect of black history that has been ignored or marginalized or trivialized in some way, put your focus on what, what you're trying to say and the importance of it. Don't do it to make money. That's the biggest mistake. You want to make money, do something else. Don't do this. Mm, that's a great point. So where do you go from here with the book? You just had this highly herald, heralded presentation of your book at the National Association of Negro Musicians Conference in Philadelphia last week. It was great. The people were excited. Your book sold like hotcakes. What, <laughs> what is next on your plate with the book? Oh, well, with this present book, I'm just going to keep um, – doing more promotional efforts. Um, I've been submitting it to uh, book fairs and conventions like the American Library Association conventions. And I've done all this online, too. I haven't even been there. I just send the book and the information mm. to AFB, and the book gets presented. As a matter of fact, I just met with a gentleman who's probably going to be my publicist. Um, and that he he attended the New York uh, Book Expo, a very big book expo that happened in, back in May. I sent the book in. 
All of this I did away when I'm in Saudi Arabia, right, by the way. It all can be done online. I sent the book in, mm. comments and sent the fee. And this gentleman saw my book at the Book Expo. Out of hundreds of books, thousands of books that were there and publishers and this and that, he saw my book and felt that it could be um, basically marketed to specific audiences. He contacted me, and we talked when I met him. I finally came back to the States for the summer, and I met with him in New York City. And we agreed to 20 interviews and 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 press releases and everything. So I'm now in the in the promotional part of the book. I mean, it took me 14 years to do it, you know, to write it, of course. But now I'm in the the, the um, promotional part of my efforts, and I'm looking forward to doing a lot of interviews. Um, to get this out because there's a lot of things competing for people's time and, and attention these days. So anything I do has got to be focused and well done. So that's what I'm at now in the promotion part of it. Well, well, I tell you what, I'm certainly honored that you're on here talking about the book because, you know, seeing is really believing and, and to have the book in my hand and to and to read these in-depth stories, they're not just, you know, you could go anywhere and just get a biography of a singer or a pianist or an organist, but these books are in-depth conversations where you really understand what the person went through to become the musician that they were. And I just want to say personally thank you from the African American Voice and Classical Music. Thank you so much for this contribution um, to, this, to this body of, of work as far as uh, historical um, presentation of our history. Um, now, just before you go, could you maybe tell the listeners where they can follow more or learn more information about you and where they can obtain your book? Um, let's see. Right now, I have a website, www.elainecello.com. It's all small letters, no breaks. And the book is available from my website, but also from Amazon.com. That's Amazon is about my best venue right now. I'm not in bookstores yet because I'm doing print-on-demand. I have to change mm-hmm. the way I do some things now that I've got going, you know. But Amazon and also my website are two places. And it might be a couple of other places you can get it, too. I'm working on some different uh, contacts right now, you know. But if you want it right now, Amazon is your best bet and my website. Fabulous, fabulous. Well, I'm going to tell you now, your book is going to be in bookstores across the country. It is a wonderful book. And listeners, I do want to take the time to thank Elaine Mack, author of Black Classical Musicians in Philadelphia, Oral Histories Covering Four Generations. It's a wonderful book. You must get it for your colleges and universities, your church libraries, everywhere that, that people can read about music, particularly black classical musicians. It's a wonderful resource. Elaine, thank you so much for being on today. Well, thank you, Patrick, for having me. This was great fun, as always. You know, it's, it's, it's good to, it's good it was good to talk about it, and it's good to get the word out. I love it. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much. And I hope that you have a a wonderful afternoon, and we look forward to keep on promoting and sharing about your wonderful work with these black past musicians who have just done so much in this arena. Okay. Well, thank you, Patrick. Okay. Okay. Goodbye. Again, listeners, you have been listening to Elaine Mack, author of Black Classical Musicians in Philadelphia, uh, spanning oral histories covering four generations. It is a must-have book. Again, if you want to get the book immediately, you can go to Amazon.com, and you also can look up the book 
on uh, her website, which is elainecello.com. Again, this is Patrick B. McCoy, the African-American voice in classical music. I want to thank you so much uh, for tuning in today with this special interview with author Elaine Matt. She pointed out some wonderful things um, in her plight to cover this book. I'm telling you, it's a magnificent book. And she mentioned some things, not just about music, but just about life. Don't let people discourage you. If you have a vision for something, keep on keeping on. Um, one of the other things she had mentioned, a point that often is always made, that sometimes you have to go, um, you have to cross the pond and then return home before someone appreciates your talent. I'm definitely a, a testimony to that. Please. Don't give up on your dreams. This book is a fine example of that. Black classical musicians in Philadelphia, oral history is covering four generations by Elaine Mack. I encourage you to get this book. It, again, you can get it on Amazon.com and also again on her website, ElaineCello.com. That's all lowercase letters. Again, this is Patrick B. McCoy, the African-American voice in classical music. You may follow me on Twitter at Patrick B. McCoy. You may friend me on Facebook. Patrick B. McCoy, the African-American voice in classical music. You may also follow me on the Blog Talk radio page. Again, thank you so much and have a wonderful day.